If it were up to me, there would be no waiting. I do not like to wait. Not for a single minute. I want doctor's visits to start when they're scheduled to start. Sorry, Dr. Degler. I'm sure she does good. I want yellow lights to be yellow longer. I do not want to find a backup at the checkout counters in the grocery store. When my credit card is swiped, I want it to process immediately, the first time, without any problems. When I click on an internet site, I do not want to see an hourglass spinning around. I want food to cook in exactly the time it says on the recipe. I want the rain or snow or storm to stop precisely when the meteorologist forecasted it to. I will not get in line for an hour to ride a three-minute roller coaster. I want the fish to bite within seconds of my bait being cast into the water. But we do wait a lot. How many of you didn't sleep well last night and waited and waited and waited for your alarm to go off this morning? How many of you waited on people to finish getting ready so you could get in the car to come to church? How many of you are waiting right now for this sermon to finish? So you can get on to ABF, and more importantly, to lunch. How many of you, like me, have waited in hospital rooms this year? I've been in far too many for my liking. Waiting for people to get better or not. How many of you have waited day after day to find out if your job was in the next group of layoffs? Some of you are waiting to find a husband or a wife. And it's a long wait. Some of you are waiting to have a child. Some of you have waited up for a child to get home this last week to make sure that they've arrived safely and haven't gotten into trouble or into an accident or worse. Some of you have waited for the test to come back to see if the cancer is gone or coming back. Some of you have been inundated with financial trials and are waiting to see if you can actually get your head above water or if you're going to drown in debt. Some of you have been waiting your whole life for someone you love to accept Jesus as their Savior. Waiting and waiting and waiting. As I began to think about biblical examples that might be similar to our experiences, 
I was overwhelmed. It appears that almost every person in the Bible had to wait at some point. From Noah waiting for it to rain for the first time, to Abraham waiting for a promised son in his agedness, to Joshua and Caleb waiting for 40 years to get into the promised land by no fault of their own, to Hannah waiting for children in her barrenness while her husband's second wife belittle and mocks her year after year after year, to Joseph sitting in a prison for a crime he didn't do, not knowing the outcome, to Daniel being lowered into a lion's den, waiting to David, waiting to build God's glorious house, the temple, and never getting to. To Elijah, waiting for birds to bring him food in the middle of a famine. To Jonah, waiting in the belly of a great fish with no hope, of his rescue. To Job, waiting in agony and devastation. To the prophets, one after another, after another, after another, throughout the Old Testament, waiting for the people to repent. To the whole nation, waiting 400 years to hear something from God again after Malachi. To the disciples waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit. To the early church waiting for the coming persecution under Nero and others. I could fill a whole sermon with just examples of waiting. So what's the deal? Why does God see fit to have us all wait so much for even the tiniest of things in our lives to happen? Is it some sadistic game that he's playing with us? Holding all the cards and not letting us see anything until he lays them down? Does God even have control over all things? Or does he sometimes just forget about us because he's got more important things to do? The answers to these questions could each be their own sermons. And I don't have the time or the desire or the ability to answer them all this morning. But that's not really the point anyway. What I do want to accomplish is far simpler and far more something that we want. We are deprived. And this feeds our impatience, our pride, our angry, selfish hearts. And I have no desire to pacify those fleshly impulses. I do too often anyway. 
Rather, followers of Jesus ought to think about waiting in a different way. We ought to think about waiting as a matter of not deprivation, but expectancy. Expectancy. When we wait, we ought not to concentrate on our lack, on our unfulfilled desires. We ought to focus on the hope that is before us. And Psalm 130 is a magnificent text in this regard. So what I want to do this morning is move through it together briefly. It's not complicated. And then I want to give us some thoughts toward application at the end. So three points as we work our way through here, if you're taking notes. The first is this. Come to Jesus. If you want to overcome the hurdle of waiting and live a faithful life following Jesus, come to Jesus. He will hear you. Come to Jesus. He will hear you. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's really pleading there, isn't he? I cry to you. Hear me. Let your ears be attentive. You know, at different times and phases and experiences of our life, we can relate to this opening call of the psalmist here. We can relate to the heartfelt anguish and hopelessness. We can relate to the lostness that we sometimes feel, the sense of feeling and being overwhelmed by the circumstances of this life, the disappointments, the defeats that we're experiencing. There are times when we just seem to be in the depths, crying out to the Lord and not being heard, or it seems like not being heard, desperate for mercy, desperate for help. And at such a time, there, there is the crying out to God, to Yahweh, to our great Lord, the God of Israel the creator of all the world, the cry to be heard. Hear me. And the great blessing is that if you cry out to your God, he will hear you. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, do we take that for granted or what? If you cry out to your God, He hears you. Do you remember that faithfulness of Hannah, as I mentioned earlier, in her time of waiting for children? Listen to her prayer. This is her prayer from 1 Samuel 1, verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. The text says she came to the temple year by year. 
Year after year after year. We don't know how long. And then there's beautiful words in verse 19. It says, The Lord remembered her. David put it this way back in Psalm 40, another wonderful uh, psalm that mentions waiting on the Lord and hoping in the Lord. You, you know this verse, Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Aren't you glad the Lord hears your cry? He may not answer in the time or the manner that you think or you desire. But isn't it still comforting to know he hears your cry every time that you come to him? That's a great blessing, and it's part of what you need to do to overcome the hurdle of waiting in your life. Come to the Lord. Cry out to him. Let him hear the anguish of your heart. A second thing in the psalm we see in verses 3 and 4, confess to Jesus and he will humble you as a result. Confess to Jesus. He will humble you. Look at those verses again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So there's two little statements of theology tucked into the psalm here that are really important. In fact, maybe the most important verses of the psalm. They could actually stand alone, independent of the psalm. You can take them out of the psalm and just read them, and they still mean the same thing. They're truth, theological truth. Statement one is about sin and judgment. It's about humanity standing before God for our sin. And with the Lord, of course, there is absolute justice. And the psalmist here says, if God were to mark my iniquities, if he were to watch out for our sins, like a watchman on the lookout for my sins, I could not stand. Neither could you. Neither could anyone. Our iniquities are all too easy to be seen, aren't they? And all of us would fail. The Lord humbles us because of our sin. Facing failure is very difficult for humans. Some of us, of course, have had more experience in this area than others. But it's very difficult for humans to face failure, especially facing moral, sinful failure. Especially when we're in the depths and not seeing any way out, even though we know deep down that we're to blame for what the problem we've got ourselves into. We want to say, it's not my fault. It's just a series of circumstances. I couldn't help it. Uh, my parents messed me up. Or, or there's some other explanation as to why I've done what I've done. Or sometimes we move into denial. I didn't do that. I've never done that, that kind of thing. And still yet, in what we see a lot in our culture today, we accept the truth that we've done such things. And then we kind of change morality. We, we move from the absolute goodness and truths of God to the kind of moral values of today's society. And instead of saying, no, I've never done that, we'd say, well, yeah, sure, I did it. Everybody else does it too. 
There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a normal part of life. And in, instead of the hypocrisy of the moralist, we adopt the shamelessness of the pagans. That's a lot of where our culture is today, isn't it? Calling good evil and evil good. Notice the second of the theological truths, verse 4. But, I always love it when there's those buts in Scripture to give contrast. But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is taught throughout all the Old Testament. It's the great characteristic of our Lord to give mercy, pardon, grace, love. This is what makes it possible for people like you and I to face our own sinfulness, to face our own failures and our iniquities, to face our moral failures and mess-ups. In particular, the knowledge, the hope, the possibility of forgiveness for our sins enables us to face our failures. When there's no possibility of forgiveness but only the certainty that judgment is coming, then we squirm and twist and deny and try to get out of there as soon as we can. But when we know there's forgiveness and pardon and mercy available, we can honestly face the failures that are mine. You know, the strict and unforgiving parent will never have a child that comes and confesses freely to them. Out of their strictness, they will produce lying, denying, sneaky little hypocrites. Because what else can you do if you're going to get punished and you get caught and you get found out? It produces rebellious or shameless families. I don't care what you think. Or into denial. I never did that. It wasn't me. It was my brother who was responsible. But this doesn't work without verse 3. Yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's mercy. But you can't have forgiveness without God being the judge who also marks iniquity as well. If everything's forgiven all the time, nothing matters, right? There's no justice. In fact, if everything is forgiven all the time, there's actually no real forgiveness either, is there? It's just acceptance. It's just saying, you've done the wrong thing, but I forgive you. Whatever you do, I'll accept you. That's a completely different thing. Acceptance is not the same as forgiveness. With God watching sin, the psalmist says, no one would stand, but with God, there is forgiveness and here is the importance of the cross right brothers and sisters god doesn't forgive us by ignoring our sin by accepting our sin god forgives us by paying for our sin in the sacrifice of his one and only son our lord jesus christ without him no forgiveness there would only be acceptance of wrongdoing but with the cross the penalty is paid so forgiveness is available notice the second half of verse four 
But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The second half of of this verse for us uh, almost sounds misplaced, doesn't it? When we think about fear, we usually associate it with God's justice, right? Or judgment. We're afraid because we're going to get it. But this psalm associates fear of God with the forgiveness of God. We fear God's judgment. It's our guilt that drives us to fear the judge, right? But the psalm is saying something different, almost the reverse. God forgives that we may fear him. The fear of the Lord is found in forgiveness, not judgment. It's because of forgiveness that we fear him. It goes beyond the fear of judgment, beyond the fear of punishment that we're talking about here. It's because of forgiveness he creates the restoration of our relationship with him. It's for that reason we fear him. The fear of the Lord comes from our forgiveness and mercy. Do you see that? This is counterintuitive to what sometimes we would think. It's when we who know that we can't stand before God, we know that, all fall short. It's when we find God's forgiveness that we first learned to fear the Lord. And so the Lord will either humble us if we try to stand in our own righteousness, which we can't, or he'll humble us as we learn to fear him as a forgiven sinner. We'll be able to deal honestly with him, humbly with him about our sins because of the relationship he's established with us. That's the second thing we need to do. Confess to Jesus. When you are in times of great waiting, confess the truth. Speak the truth that you know about God, the the truth that you know about the Lord Jesus, the truth that you know about the Holy Spirit. Speak that back to him. He will humble you. He will put you in the right frame of mind to be able to endure. Thirdly, commit to Jesus because he will help you. Verses 5 through 8. So I see this as the results of the early part of the psalm. The theology of verses 3 and 4 bring about two results. One is a personal result. The psalmist says, I I, I. The second is a corporate result. He's speaking about his nation, the nation of Israel. Look at the personal result here in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. You're like, why did he say that twice? Well, you know, in the Bible, when something's repeated, especially in the Old Testament, especially in poetry, it's for emphasis. It's repeated for emphasis. The first result here is this personal one. He's crying out from the depths. He's looking to the Lord for mercy. He has the theology of verses 3 and 4 in place. And now he is exhorting himself. He's preaching to himself, wait for the Lord. And wait for 
His word. Wait on His word. Rely on His word. Wait for the salvation that is to come. Wait and go on waiting. Wait like the watchman who feels that the morning is never going to get here, even though he knows it will. But that long lingering until the sun comes up, wait, he says, I'm going to wait. I've never been a watchman sitting on a city wall waiting for the sun to come up, although I've watched many sunrises from time to time. But I have, like many of you, been a parent, and I know what it's like to be up in the middle of the night, my wife more than me, with a sick child. You think the morning will never come. Every few minutes you look at the time, don't you, to see whether your watching is wrong because you just keep waiting for that dawn to arrive and it seems like it's never going to come. So we wait on the Lord. We wait for the mercy to come. We wait for the word of pardon that we will receive just like Israel waited for the word that became flesh and who died and rose again in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the gospel that declares that we are justified and will be glorified. We wait on the Lord in expectancy. Do you see that? The sense of expectancy. Something's coming. I'm waiting for it. I'm not sitting here complaining about my circumstances. I'm waiting for the Lord. Second result is a corporate one, verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. That word hope is the same idea as the word wait. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Don't you love that phrase? Plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The news is not only for the psalmist, is it? Israel, too, is sinful and under judgment. And Israel needs to learn the message of verses 3 and 4, the theology of verses 3 and 4. The challenge is to wait in hope, to hope in the Lord, to hope in the one with whom there is plentiful redemption. Just like the dawn is certain to come, so the knowledge is certain that he will come and redeem Israel. And, of course, he did exactly that. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says, Because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up for our final song. While they're coming, let's think about some application together in this area of waiting. How do we stay faithful in times when we have to wait and it's hard to wait? And I'm, I'm the first in line to confess that. It's hard for me to wait. It's easy for me to become impatient. What can we do to stay faithful, to persevere? Let me give you six things just by way of starting. There's many more. First, believe that God is in control of all things. Believe that. Believe that God is in control of all things. If you want to get good at waiting, you have to first acknowledge that God is sovereign. There is nothing that we are presently experiencing that is outside 
of his direct oversight. He's not out of control. Here's what the wise king said. You remember our study in Ecclesiastes chapter 7? You remember these verses? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man might not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity, God brought that your way. In the day of adversity, mm, God brought that your way too. Believe that he's in control of all things and that he will work all things together for your good, for those who love God. Second, seek spiritual strength from the Lord. I love how Isaiah put it. Um, one of our brothers uh, read that earlier this morning from Isaiah forty thirty one. They who wait for the Lord, that's what we're talking about. We want, to be, we want to be good waiters. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That's a good thing, right? When you're in the depths, wouldn't you like some strength? Those who wait on the Lord, wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength love the picture they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint seek spiritual strength for the lord if you wait on him you should find it a third point of application be quiet some of us, when we're waiting, just run our mouths, don't we? We complain about everything and anything. Don't point it, don't, don't nudge those people. Yeah. What do scriptures tell us? Lamentations 3.26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Psalm 62.5, for God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. It's the idea of that confidence, that still, calm peace that you have because he's in control, because he knows the way that you take, as Job said. A fourth area of application, put away fear and worry. Easier said than done, right? Put away fear and worry. Fear can be a helpful response in a dangerous situation. Yes, it can. But it can also be something that overwhelms us and takes our eyes off of Christ. The remedy to our fears is God himself. You realize that, right? Psalm 56, the psalmist said this, verses 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In Psalm 46, these wonderful verses, verses 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength. There it is again. A very present help in trouble. He's there. He's near you. He's present. Therefore, we will not Fear, 
Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. A fifth application. Pray. You want to persevere in waiting well? Pray. Many of you know this so well firsthand. Pray. As the psalmist said, cry out to him. Romans puts it this way. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Philippians 4, verses many of you know and love. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember, when the rest of the world is panicking, the church should be praying. A, th- a final thought. And I, like I said, there's, you can come up with many more. And I encourage you to talk more about that in your ABF classes if you can. Long for Jesus' return. I, I'm convinced this is one of the chief reasons that God has so much waiting in our lives. <laughs> waiting at stoplights. Waiting in lines waiting for sickness, waiting for money troubles to be resolved, waiting, 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 waiting. In those moments when you wait, long for Jesus' return. You know, with all those centuries that Israel waited for the Messiah, you might think the waiting would be done once Jesus showed up, right? (laughs) But here in the church age, we wait as much as ever before, don't we? We're in the same position they were. In fact, we've waited longer, much longer. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, We wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 tells us that we are a people waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 tells us the church is that community which has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And Hebrews 9, 28 teaches us that we know that when He appears, He comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I would encourage you, this would be a great place to start if you want something really practical. The next time you're waiting and you're frustrated or you're impatient or you're angry or you're proud and you're yelling at the driver who cut you off or whatever, whatever it is, when that moment comes, discipline yourself to think about the fact that Jesus might come that very moment. Look to the sky. 
off of earthly things onto heavenly things. It will help you to be faithful as you wait. The song we've been singing at the end of each service through this whole sermon series is taken from Psalm 121. Listen to how rich these words are and how they've summarized so much of what we've been learning as we all want to continue to persevere faithfully, overcoming hurdles as we've talked about like personal failure and sin, suffering, persecution, work, uh, idleness and workaholics and retirement and the danger of hanging up our towels and family and the temptations that family can present to us. And today, waiting. May the Lord help every one of us to be faithful to the end of this life and into the next. That's often what we pray for you as as pastors as we gather to pray for you. We pray that you will persevere to the end. All the way. All the way to the end. And you can with the Lord's help. Here are these verses. We're going to sing it in just a moment. I lift my eyes and see... I need not be afraid. All my help comes from the Lord, who the earth and sky has made. The Lord will never sleep. My steps he has ordained. For the one who holds the night is the sovereign of my days. He will keep you from all evils. Behind you and before. It doesn't mean you won't go through any evils, does it? But it means they will not destroy you. He will guard you. He will preserve you through them. He will keep you from all evils behind you and before you. He will sustain you through this journey from now and evermore. And I think that's a great way to sum up what we've been trying to impress on our hearts during this short sermon series. Where do we go from here? Next week, we'll just give praise to the Lord. That'll be okay, right? We'll spend a lot of time in praise and prayer and thanksgiving to the Lord. Lots of scripture readings and thinking on Him. And then uh, we'll have our message, our annual message on the deacons coming up at the end of November as we prepare to to elect some more men. And then uh, we'll head into the Advent season and we'll, we'll talk about the birth of the Lord Jesus again, how wonderful it is, how it changed everything in history for all of us. And then in January, we'll come back and we'll continue in 1 Corinthians. And we're looking forward to getting back into that text. But I hope this has been encouraging to you this fall. Uh, in the midst of your waiting, look for the Lord's return. He's coming. He says He's coming soon you're like yeah right it's been 2,000 years yeah it has it's been 2,000 years but Jesus said he's coming soon that's the thought we need to keep in our minds as we persevere to the end let's stand together we'll sing this song together and then our benediction